affluence may not find some ignorance to instruct, some wrong to redress, some want to supply, some misery to alleviate. In other words, he lived to do good, or as Jesus said, to let his light shine before men that they might see his good deeds and give glory to his Father in heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. There is little doubt that Wilberforce changed the moral outlook of Great Britain. The reformation of manners, morals, grew into Victorian virtues, and Wilberforce touched the world when he made goodness fashionable. Contrast the late 18th century, with its loose morals and corrupt public life, with the mid-19th century. Whatever its faults, 19th century British public life became famous for its emphasis on character, morals, and justice, and the British business world famous for integrity. But he was practical with a difference. He believed with all his heart that new affections for God were the key to new morals and lasting political reformation. And these new affections and this reformation did not come from mere ethical systems. They came from what he called the peculiar doctrines of Christianity. For Wilberforce, practical deeds were born in peculiar doctrines. By that term, he simply meant the central distinguishing doctrines of human depravity, divine judgment, the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross, justification by faith alone, regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and the practical necessity of fruit in a life devoted to good deeds. The Fatal Habit of Nominal Christians He wrote his book to show that the bulk of Christians in England were merely nominal because they had abandoned these doctrines in favor of a system of ethics and had thus lost the power of ethical life and the political welfare. He wrote, The fatal habit of considering Christian morals as distinct from Christian doctrines insensibly gained strength. Thus the peculiar doctrines of Christianity went more and more out of sight and as might naturally have been expected, the moral system itself also began to wither and decay, being robbed of that which should have supplied it with life and nutriment. He pled with nominal Christians of England not to turn their eyes from the grand peculiarities of Christianity, but to keep these ever in view as the pregnant principles whence all the rest must derive their origin and receive their best support. Knowing that Wilberforce was a politician for most of his adult life, who never lost an election from the time he was 21 years old, we might be tempted to think that his motives were purely pragmatic, as if he should say, if Christianity works to produce the political welfare, then use it. But that is not the spirit of his mind or his life. In fact, he believed that such pragmatism would ruin the very thing it sought, the reformation of culture. The Decisive Direction of Sin, Vertical Take the example of how people define sin. When considering the nature of sin, Wilberforce said the vast bulk of Christians in England estimated the guilt of an action not by the proportion in which, according to Scripture, actions are offensive to God, but by that in which they are injurious to society. Now, in the face of it, that sounds noble, loving, and practical. Sin hurts people, so don't sin. Wouldn't that definition of sin be good for society? But Wilberforce says, Their slight notions of the guilt and evil of sin reveal an utter lack of all suitable reverence for the divine majesty. This principle, reverence for the divine majesty, is justly termed in Scripture the beginning of wisdom, Psalm 111, verse 10. 
And without this wisdom, there will be no deep and lasting good done for man, spiritually or politically. Therefore, the supremacy of God's glory in all things is what he calls the grand governing maxim in all of life. The good of society may never be put ahead of this. That would dishonor God and, paradoxically, defeat the good of society. For the good of society, the good of society must not be the primary good. What's wrong with dueling? A practical example of how his mind worked is shown in his approach to the practice of dueling. Wilberforce hated this folly, the practice that demanded that a man of honor accept a challenge to a duel when another felt insulted. Wilberforce's close friend, the Prime Minister William Pitt, actually fought a duel with George Tierney in 1798, and Wilberforce was shocked that the Prime Minister would risk his life and the nation in this way. Many opposed.